I'm grateful to the men's chorus. I sound so much better singing with all those guys behind me. <laughs> Jesus puts his game face on. There's a clarity ringing through these words. And he needs a place to stay right off the bat. And the Samaritan village refuses him. And they don't buy into his going to Jerusalem. They, you're, you're the wrong race. You're the wrong group. You don't think like we think. You're the wrong belief, the wrong color, the wrong orientation. You're just wrong. And you can't stay here. When one of the highest virtues of the ancient world was hospitality, no Motel 6 leaving the light on any, for anybody. Nobody had a punch card at the 7-Eleven where you get a four-gallon Slurpee. Just put him out there at the mercy of the elements. And James and John are rightly offended. Want us to rain fire on them? Now Jesus could have said, well, let's hold that option. He could have said, let's have a focus group and think about some possibilities here. But instead he turns and sharply says, no. Violence and vengeance are not my way. Violence and vengeance are no motive for faith, no motive for life. The disciples have invoked the image of Elijah who rained down fire on his enemies, a popular image for the Messiah. And Jesus is saying, I'm not that guy. I am among you as a son of God, and we're not here to talk about raining fire on anybody. I have a lot of heroes in faith. It may be surprising. I hope it doesn't. A lot of those heroes are right here. I remember several years ago now teaching a class, and something had been done at the state level, a court or a legislature or something, had done something disparaging gay and lesbian people. And I came into the Sunday school class mad. And I voiced it. And one of those guys spoke up and said, I will not let anyone make me hate. Such stark contrast to those who invoke their religion as cover for their prejudice and hatred, whether they be talk radio people or politicians or, or Westboro Baptists. And it says along the way, he encounters this person who says, I will follow you wherever you go. Maybe like me, you grew up singing that hymn, I'll go where you want me to go, dear Lord, over mountain or plain or sea. I'll go where you want, I'll do what, I'll, all that. It's a pious confession to make. Sounds like deep commitment. Then Jesus says this stuff about the birds got nests, foxes got holes in the ground. I don't have a place to lay down. It's kind of, do you see the need that's right in front of you? A good friend of mine, a chaplain, told me of a day with a, a hospice patient who was nauseated, and they went through their conversation, a very important conversation, and, and she told me at the end of the, she offered to have prayer with the woman, and the woman said, I'd really rather have a seven-up. 
the need that's right in front of us. He says to another, follow me. And he says, okay, yeah, but, but first, missing the urgency of it all, first, let me bury my father. Who can argue with that? And Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. Well, that's just not very nice. I think I've been in every funeral home in Louisville. I think I've worked with almost every funeral director in Louisville and find them almost unfailingly to be kind and caring people. I don't think any of them would choose this, let the dead bury the dead, become a logo for their business. But I think it's the literalism that trips us up here. The man is saying, I I first want to go back to that spiritually dead place. The religion of my father. I'm not buying into all this urgency. So he's choosing a life of choking legalism over the adventure that Jesus offers. He's afraid of new challenges. And he chooses what he knows even though it's killing him. Let me go back to the place of of dead. Another one says, I'll follow you, but let me say my goodbyes. And Jesus introduces this wisdom saying about plowing and not looking backwards, otherwise you're not fit for the kingdom of God. And I'm not a farmer, but I do know you can't plow a straight row if you're looking over your shoulder. And Jesus is telling us that life cannot be defined by the past or by the past ways of thinking. Last year about this time, I was reading a book by a travel writer. I'd never read a book from a travel writer before. But this man is also a recovering alcoholic. And he uses travels in his writings as one way of coping with his alcoholism and furthering his recovery. And he told of being on one of those beaches in Hawaii and getting out of the water that's about neck deep, and he saw this dorsal fin go around him. And he lit out for shore, swimming as hard and as fast as he could, wanting to get away from the shark, thinking that any minute the jaws were going to come down on him. And when he got to the shore, he sat down and panting, trying to catch his breath, and he said, you know, when you beat a shark, that's worth a beer or two. And he said, just how quickly it, easy to go, it is to go back to a, a sick way of thinking that will only plunge his life into the hell that it had been. No, says Jesus, it's a new way to live. He refused the definitions of the past. The Samaritan village is looking backward to prejudice. The disciples are calling down fire and looking backward. Later, Jesus will tell a story about a Samaritan. And he's the good guy. Not the backward way of prejudice, but the forward way of looking for good in people. I had a man years ago now, a patient, Vietnam veteran. 
His wife would tell me about the night sweats and the nightmares and waking up, yelling, screaming. But during the day, he worked very hard to keep all of that terrible stuff from the war out of their lives. One day, working on his car in the driveway, there's this pair of knobby knees that belong to an 11, 12-year-old girl. And she's just standing there. Doesn't know why, but senses there's more going on. So he doesn't question her. He just said, while you're here, make yourself useful. Hand me that ratchet. What's a ratchet? He tells her. She gets it, hands it to him. He says, okay, now I need a three-eighths drive. What's a three-eighths drive? So he explains it to her, and she rummages through his toolbox and gets him the three-eighths drive. And a few minutes later, he says, I need some needle-nose pliers. What are needle-nose pliers? So he explains what they look like, and she gets him out and hands it to him. And he will discover that this girl is looking for a safe place to hang out. Getting away from a home of anger and violence and abuse. And so she comes up to a stranger down the road and stands in his driveway. And he taught her mechanics. Today she is a mechanic. She has her own shop in Indiana. Both refusing to be defined by the past, by the violence of that time. Why so urgent? I think so often we read this passage and we get hung up in these wisdom sayings, and we, but we miss that note of urgency. Why? Why is he so urgent? And again, we look at the Bible and we read this one little part, and we forget to look at the bigger picture. If you look at Luke's gospel, you find him, before this instance occurs, the mentioning of women who have been healed and who become part of the band of Jesus and who help make things happen for them. You find a story about a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, 12 years of an illness that just won't stop. How debilitating. But even worse, it marks her as unfit for worship. She's stigmatized. And Jesus allows her to touch him, and he touches her back. And there's a little girl who's raised from the dead. But you see, at that time, women didn't count for a whole lot. Little girls, even less. But Jesus sees them as more. There's an urgency of life. Because the life in Christ is for all, no matter the gender, no matter the age. And the urgency continues. We live in a day when the father of a rapist can say publicly, it was just 20 minutes of action. Not sure who should be in jail. The urgency remains because 5,000 children a year die at the hands of their own parents. The urgency continues because there are too many women and children alone on the streets.
Talked to a woman last week who told me about her job at Ford. Delighted to have a job that she could provide for her children. But now she has to put on a gruff exterior at work because the men make so many lewd comments and spend their days leering at her. And they make her less. They force her into being something that she really is not. And the story of the storm at sea and the terrified disciples and Jesus is in the boat with them. They think they're going to die. And Jesus calms at sea. And the urgency is still with us, the terrifying stuff that goes with loss. I stood in the driveway preparing for a funeral with the mother of a 15-year-old who died, listening to how she'd been there all through 15 years, every treatment, every search for treatment, every realization that it wasn't working, and now she's gone. And she says, I don't know what I'm going to do. It's not a time for glib reassurances, but a time for the love of those who know this place. Yesterday I went to the funeral home for a friend whose wife of 60 years passed away. I turned in the line and saw a woman from work. And just instantly I knew how hard it was for her to be there because her father died three weeks ago. But because of relationship and because she knows this place where we don't know what to do, it's urgent for her to be there. And there's a story of a man whose illness and whose demons and even the villagers drive him to live in the graveyard naked and screaming. And Jesus brings him back to community clothed and in his right mind because the community is so very important. It's urgent because we still have a world of religious people pronouncing harsh judgments as if they have the right to call down fire on somebody else. Whether it be Westboro Baptist showing up at every gay funeral or a shooter in Orlando or a host of others who make it okay to hate and then when it comes out violently they say, oh no, didn't mean that. But that's precisely what happens. I talked to a man years ago, a Holocaust survivor, wonderful man, picture on the wall in his house, almost identical to the picture that hangs on my mother-in-law's wall, picture of the village where he grew up, and I asked him about it. He said, it's where he grew up. I said, how many people were there? We have 5,000 until the Nazis came. I said, did, did they take some people? Did they kill some people? And he cut me off. He said, they killed everybody. They killed everybody. I just wasn't there. And I said to him, I know that you, you go to schools and you go to clubs and wherever and, and you speak. 
What do you say about this? And he said, I tell people that the world is too small for anything but kindness. There's urgency in the mission of Jesus and a clarity. It is needed because people die and they get lost and they get addicted and they get alienated. And we're called to see clearly how God loves each of us and all of us. That we're called to practice kindness or people starve emotionally. That we're to welcome all or there's no community and we end up angry and alienated. So why the excuses? Why the excuses? Why say I'd rather hang out with the dead? Why, why say I've got to go say goodbye? Why say I've got to go reorganize my spiritual sock drawer? Well, you see, when Jesus first started, when it's clear in his mind what he's doing, the first thing he runs into is rejection. And it's a dangerous rejection. No place for food and water. So following Jesus makes them vulnerable right off the bat. No fire to call down, no arming ourselves to the teeth, just vulnerability. And a call to dare things like loving our enemies and forgiving other people, looking for understanding. You've gone had a music camp this week, a music therapy camp for special children, and they are special. And I went to pick up my Katie one day and sat with the mom waiting for her little boy. And she was telling me how his particular condition makes it difficult for him to take in so much stimuli, too much color, too much noise, too much, and he, he shuts down or he acts out. And at the grocery store where this happened, an old man, old being defined by somebody older than I am. (laughs) An old man told her, what that boy needs, you need to take him in the restroom and whip up on his lower posterior. That's a paraphrase. And she said, you really shouldn't talk like that in front of children, sir. And you don't understand. He, He repeated the same assertion. And so she took her boy and she turned and walked away. Her little boy said, Mom, why is he so angry? And she said, he just doesn't understand. And this little five-year-old said, I think he needs a hug. I'm not so naive to think we all just go around hugging each other and everything becomes hunky-dory. But I think about the response that I wanted to make, which was to take that old man in the restroom and whip up on his posterior And pretty soon, we're a village of people with painful rear ends. (laughs) But we haven't solved anything. And out of the mouth of a five-year-old is this creative, kind response. There's an urgency. And it requires us to live vulnerably. That's scary. What if you really know who I am? 
What if you really know every thought I've ever had, every word I've ever said, everything I ever did? I couldn't run for president. What happens if I drop my defenses and give up my excuses? Ah, but with the openness, there are more possibilities. Went to the doctor this week for my annual physical, and he gave me something different. They always give you papers to fill out that you've filled out numerous times. This was different. There are three or four pages on my diet. And I found that I really wanted to lie to my doctor. I don't want you messing with my chocolate. Or my yeast rolls. But then I thought, well, if I lie to my doctor, I'm cutting off the possibility of being better. Years ago, I had a patient bed-bound. I never saw him at any time but what he wasn't flat on his back. I asked him what he wanted with the remaining time that he had. And he said he wanted to see his children. Okay, where are they? And he didn't know. Well, how long since you've seen them? Twelve years. Twelve years? And our social worker was wonderful, and she found the daughter in the military, in the Philippines. And the Red Cross brought her home. And they called me and asked me to come out and help them have a conversation. And when I got there, the tension in the house was just so thick you could cut it with a knife. And I sat down with this man, his 22-year-old daughter, this beautiful young woman. And I said to them, maybe we need to start by talking about why we haven't seen each other for 12 years. He had this kind of rich Kentucky twang, and he said, well, I can't think of no reason. And her eyes got about that big, and she said, I saw you shoot my stepfather. All the excuse, all the defense of his life, everything he lied about, it's all ripped away in one statement by the daughter he so achingly wants to see. But it didn't stop there. I was privileged to sit there in silence and watch them, listen to them talk. They concluded with her laying her head on his chest and his stroking her hair in what will be for me always a beautiful picture of reconciliation. When he finally got vulnerable, he got what he really wanted and really needed. We are called to be a people who live vulnerably, and it's scary, but it's the way to life. Amen. We sing a hymn. It's my joy to invite you on behalf of the people here to become part of this community of faith, to share your life with them and have them share theirs with you. However you wish to follow Jesus today and how that helps you here, you come. We stand to sing hymn 490.